And we're continuing on in our series to see the heart of the Lord or the heart of Yahweh. And in the midst of this series, we're going to see some difficult texts. And this is once again another kind of difficult, strong judgment text, very similar to last week as well. And what these texts do is they begin to give us a structure and a framework for really what the heart of God is because we begin to start seeing things like God's holiness. We begin to see things like God's justice. We begin to see things like God's wrath and many more things. And these begin to set up almost a framework for what we are going to begin to see at the center of God and what is motivating Him as well. And it's not that these things aren't at the center. They are there with them. They're holding tension with them but they are shaping what the heart of the Lord is going to begin to look at, will look like. And so today I'm going to read for us Hosea 5, verses 1 through 15 for us, and then we'll pray, and then we will begin to get into our text. Hosea 5, verse 1, begins this. And this is the Word of God. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and their vultures have gone deep into slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not Yahweh. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek Yahweh, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with Yahweh, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields." Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm in beth We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Along the, among the tribes of Israel, I, may know, I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness, and Judah his wound, when Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you, or heal your wound, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face in their distress. And, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. Let's pray. God, we ask that we would help. I ask that you would help us to see you today. Lord, it is a great temptation to make this text about us and to make it pragmatic. Would you help us to see who you are, to see your nature, to see how you interact with us in this text, to see the judgment that you had laid upon Israel, that we might better understand you. God, we live in such a narcissistic world 
a world that is selfish and concerned with our own doing. And we ask that we would have our eyes not fixed on us today, not fixed on us in this church about what we can get from it, but rather we would have it fixed upon you. And Lord, in light of who you are in this text, we might come to know you through the message of the gospel in Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's hard to see that, but hopefully this text will begin to even illuminate the message of the gospel even more clearly for us today. And I ask that you would do that um, through the preaching of your word, that we would know and see Christ clearly today. Lord, I love and I praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, I began by talking about some of the difficulties of expositional preaching and talking about some of the difficulties of going through difficult texts, sometimes maybe texts like this, texts of judgment, wrath, justice, things such as that. But there's also another great problem in preaching and teaching today, and it's the problem of two things. It's the problem of man-centeredness, man-centeredness, and it's the problem of pragmatism, pragmatism. Oftentimes when preachers, preachers like me, teachers of God's word, will come to God's text and will see his word and will ask questions of it like, what does this tell me about me? What does this text say about my life? Or maybe a pragmatic response is, what does this text tell me to do? Now, those aren't necessarily bad questions to ask. You should be concerned about your own spiritual life. You should be concerned about your own discipline and your own faithfulness to the Lord. Those are good things. And you should very much be concerned about what to do. Because I want to apply this text. The problem, though, is those two ideas of self-centeredness, man-centeredness, and pragmatism, they always miss what the Bible's really about. The Bible's a book about God. The Bible is not a book about us primarily. The Bible is primarily a book about Him and the God who spoke this world and the God who created this world and the God who sustains our very breath right now. see this all the time in culture. People move away from this idea of the Bible about God. Even in sometimes the acronym that's displayed about the Bible. Some people will say, oh, the Bible. It's basic instructions before leaving earth. I saw Zach even word those Um, that acronym to me. Maybe some of you have heard that. Maybe some of you have said that. I've had people literally say that to me before. That's trash. (laughs) That's terrible. That's all about you and what you can get from the Bible. Another way that we can see this today, and this is a worldview that I talk about in my class with my students. It's called moralistic therapeutic deism. I'll say that again, big words. I know Brother Robert over here using big words, seminarian, you know me. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Now, oftentimes that's masked as Christianity, okay? And what it is, it's just the idea that God just wants you to be a nice, kind, good person, and he'll reward you. He's kind of like a cosmic Santa Claus in some ways, and he doesn't really get that involved in your life. But all that is, is man-centered religion. And we laugh at kind of those ideas right there. But even this last week, even this last week as I was thinking about preaching the text that I did, notice what we talked about last week. We talked about five ways that you abandon God. Now, I think that's okay to talk about. I think it's good to talk about our sin. I think it's good to talk about the problems of sin and those issues. But if all I was last week, and hopefully I wasn't, if all I was was pragmatic, practical, how do you live this out? We missed it. 
And what I want to draw our eyes to today is I want to draw our eyes to the God who spoke this word into existence. I don't want to just draw our eyes to how do we live, how do we walk outside of here? No, I want to draw our eyes to exactly who this God is of the text. Not just give you practical ways, even though we want to do that. We want to practice the word of God, of course. But ultimately, what's fundamental right here is that you come to know the living God through this text. And what I want to say is, Hosea 5, it's just a clear text, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it at all. It's about God's judgment. Hosea 5 is about God's judgment. It's about his wrath and his justice. And what you're going to see in this text is you're going to see four ways, four ways that God shows his wrath, his judgment, and how he deals with sinners. That's what we're going to see in this text. Four ways that God deals with sinners. I want to shoot you straight. This is about God. Verses 1 through 2 begin this. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. Is how it starts off right here in the text. And this segues us right into our first topic right here. Our first section is God holds you accountable. God holds us accountable for our sins. This is the God who's of this Bible. God holds us accountable. And look at it right here in the text. Make sure you're seeing it right here in God's word. Hear this, O priest. So he starts off with the people who are mediating the relationship between God and man. Last week we spoke about how we don't have priests except the fact that every single person in the new covenant, every single person who's a believer in Jesus Christ is a priest. We don't have priests in the new covenant or as Christians, so I'm not a priest. However, the priests would kind of be like the leaders of the people of Israel. And so he starts off, you priests. He starts off addressing them. And he says, Israel as a nation. And he says, kings of Israel as well. Who is the Lord putting the blame on? Who's he putting, who's he holding liable for their sin? He's holding Israel liable for their sin. God will hold all of us accountable for our sin and you accountable for your sin. And what's important to see in this text is what God is not doing. God is not doing your sin. He's not saying something like this. You're sinful, or the reason why you did that is because of the Babylonians who are coming in to conquer you, or the Assyrians who are coming in to conquer you. And he's not saying, oh, it's because of the Canaanites and their sin and what they've done to you and how that's seeped into you. That's why you're guilty. No, that's not what he's doing. Or he's not even saying something like, oh, you're past in Egypt, how you were enslaved, and that was a really tough time back there, and I understand all those things. He's not saying that's why you're sinful. What he's doing right here is he's holding all of Israel accountable for their sin. Their sin is based on them. The reason why they commit sin is because they choose to. And what we're going to even see later is because they want to. And this is really important for our society to understand. Because the problem in our society, most of the time, what we try to say is, it's someone else. Or it's society itself. Or it's some systemic structure out there that's evil and wicked, and that's the problem with the world. I got news for you. The world is made up of people. It's made up of you and it's made up of me. The problem is not society. The problem is not structure. The problem is always people at the end of the day. Quick example of how this works. I have high school students, as many of you know, 
And my high school students, almost every week, there's one of them who's going to get an F on one of their homework assignments because they're not going to turn it in. And as soon as they find out they got an F, they didn't do well on it, what do you think they do? They come to Mr. Rosa and they say, Mr. Rosa, why did you give me an F? Notice who the blame is. It's always on the teacher. It's always. It's in the school. It's in society. It's also in here. And of course, what do I say back to him? What do you mean I gave you an F? (laughs) You didn't turn in the work. You didn't do your assignment. Why did you earn an F? But that's exactly what God is saying to us right here in this text. Why did you do this? The problem with society, the problem with everything that's going on in the world today, it's ultimately on us. And we're the ones who are going to be held accountable and liable for our sin. This is important for all of us to begin to see is not to blame others as we're often quick to do. There was a great cat, well, I mean, kind of, I say this loosely. There's a well-known Catholic theologian named G.K. Chesterton. I quote him quite often, and I've read a few of his stuff, and it's good stuff. And one time, G.K. Chesterton, he was being asked by a reporter. He said, the reporter asked him, G.K., what's the problem with the world? Great question, right? What's the problem with the world? And the reporter was expecting some big, long answer and trying to address, like, the issues that are going on in the world. And G.K. Chesterton said it so well. I am. I'm the problem. Brothers and sisters, yeah, there are issues that are in the culture. There are definitely issues that are at stake in this church. But what is first and primary right here in this text is God is going to hold us accountable for our sins. God is going to hold us accountable for the wrongdoing. And we need to address self first before we begin to look outwards, often like the society does. Now, he moves on. So he starts off, he says, the problem is with you problem is I'm going to hold you accountable but it moves on and the second problem is God gives you to your sin the second issue in the text is God gives you to your sin notice what he says in verse 3 I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me even though you bet Israel wished they were hidden from God at this point but God says I see it I see all your works I see every single thing you do And now, O Ephraim, you've played the whore. Israel is defiled. So what did they do? They did the consistent thing that Israel always did in the book of Hosea, is they went after other gods, and they went into this kind of sexual cult of the um, Canaanites and all these other cults that were around them, and they said, let's just revel in it. Let's love it. And God sees that. Their deeds did not permit them to return to their God. That's an interesting phrase right there, right there. Verse four is they begin to sin and they get so wrapped up in their sin, they don't go back to God. Why is that? End of verse four. For the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not Yahweh. Why is it that sin has great power over us? It's because we love it. And that's what's right here. Why is it that their sin had great power over Israel? It's because they loved it. They wanted it. And it gave them a satisfaction of their desires. And what does God do? Verse 5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. And Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. 
With their flocks and their herds, they shall go to seek Yahweh. But here, remember, they love their sin. They want it. They love it. What does God do? But they will not find him. He is withdrawn from them. What God does is God sees them in their sin. He sees what they love. He sees that they love these idols. He sees that they love the sexual cults. And he says, I'm stepping back. I'm taking my hand off. I'm giving them over to their heart's desire. And they love it. They love their sin. And they're going to live in it. And they're going to pursue it. And I got, this is a scary text for us because if there's sin that we're living in, in this room, if there's a sin that we've never repented of and we just continue to go after it and after it and after it, after it, yeah, it's a sign that you love your sin. It's also a sign of right here of what it said in verse six at the end of it. They will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. God removes his hand from you and leaves you over to your sin. We'll add a quick qualification to that in a second about believers. But this idea is picked up in the New Testament as well. Romans 1 talks about this. Romans 1, 21 through 24, I believe it's on the screen for us. Um, it talks about this idea of God kind of giving them up. And it starts to talk about the people. Is, it says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. Okay, so you got these people who, they know God. It's kind of like Israel. They know God. They did not honor him as God. Or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. And what do they do? Exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. What they did is exactly what Israel did right here. They said, God, we should be worshiping you, but we're going to worship an altar. We're going to worship sin. We're going to love it. We're going to live in it. That's what they said. And verse 24 of Romans 1 is scary. Therefore, God gave them up. Gives them up. And that's not the only time it says that. It goes on to say in verse 26, the men can continue to give themselves over to sexual desires with women. God gives them up. And then it talks about them committing homosexual acts as well. And what does it happen? God gives them up. That's frightening. God when he sees you in your sin and if you're living in your sin unrepentantly, continuing on over and over and over again, God, because remember, this is something about God, removes himself from you. Now, I'll give a quick qualification for just believers because I need to be precise and I don't want to scare believers with a truth that's not true. Is if you are a believer and you have truly believed in Jesus Christ, one, you're going to try to walk away from that sin. You're not going to love that sin. You're going to run away from it. But at the same time, God has also told us that he will not give you up. Who is to condemn the one for whom Christ Jesus died? And more than that, was raised for our justification? Nobody. If you're a believer in here, yes, you will not be condemned. But also, you're not going to love that sin like you used to. Hey, you might stumble, but you're not going to walk in it. If you need more clarification after that, oh, that is issues please come talk to me, want to talk about those issues. But what this text is also revealing to us is, and this isn't so much a point of the sermon, it's so interesting to think about this though, as God sees them in their sin, they love their sin, he begins to take his hand away, it shows that God is holy. That God is holy. And this is so important to understand about God and his nature. That God is distinct from his people. 
that God is consecrated and devoted to his own glory. God is not primarily and fundamentally devoted to his people. Yes, he is devoted to saving his people, and he loves to save his people, but primary and fundamentally, he's devoted to his glory. And when his people are living in sin, he's going to separate himself from them. He's going to move away from them. God is not like man. He is not going to live in sin. He's not going to dwell in it. And when his people do, he's going to remove himself from them. We see this all over the Bible. I think about Moses' first encounter when he walks up to God at the burning bush. God calls out to him, Moses, Moses, take off your sandals for the place where you're staying is holy ground. And what does Moses do? <sighs> Falls to the ground and begins to worship. Later on, Moses encounters God again. He says, God, let me see your face. And God tells him, I'm a holy God. You can't see me and live. So what I'll do is I'll take you and hide you between the cleft of the rock and I'll let my trail end pass before you. But if you saw my face, you would die. Or I think about the high priest who would go into the holies of holies, the tabernacle and the temple of Israel and they would go up here before God only one time a year. But if they had one spot or one scent of sin on them, they'd be wiped dead. God is a holy God. And God will not be defiled. And God with his people will move his presence away from them. That's the God we worship. Number three. Next thing we're going to see about God is verses 8 through 12. God punishes sin. God punishes Sin. Notice where it starts right here, verse 8. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm in Beth Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin, which that right there is like, oh man, war is coming. Destruction is coming for the people of Israel. That's war language right there. Blow the trumpet, sound the alarm. Let everybody know there's someone coming for us. Who's coming for you? It's the Lord, because he punishes sin. Verse 9. Ephraim shall become a desolation. And by the way, I think I've said this before, but Ephraim is just another word for Israel. It was just one of the largest, it was the largest tribe within Israel, and so it represented a lot of the people of Israel. But that's just saying Israel. It says Ephraim shall become a desolation. He's going to destroy the people of Israel. In the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. And then here it goes again. Verse 10. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark upon them. I will pour out my, and this is a really key word, and we're going to focus on this in a quick second, my wrath like water. God is going to unleash his wrath and his punishment upon the people. And I don't, honestly, when I think about God's wrath, I have a really difficult time imagining what specifically it is. But the most clear picture comes to me from Genesis 19. When God says, or it says that God unleashes his wrath and fury and fire upon the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Complete and total destruction. It's like Israel is Sodom and Gomorrah again. And then notice what it says. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. And the picture right there at the end is the idea that God in his judgment and his wrath, it's gonna be persistent. 
It's gonna be like a moth, and it's gonna eat at you little away. You keep eating and eating. It's gonna be like dry rot. And your foundation and everything that you hold dear is gonna begin to fall apart. And it's going to encompass all of your life. Everything is going to be destroyed by God and his wrath. God is a God who punishes sin. Now, this idea of God's wrath is not liked. And you can imagine why. It's not liked in our common culture. It's not liked by many people who think about God. If I just said what I said out there on a tweet or like on Twitter or Facebook or social media, oh, reject it. They would hate it, despise it. They would say, that's not the God that I serve. And I'd just say, yeah, that's right, because you don't serve the God of the Bible. That's the God of the Bible. But this is rejected commonly. One place that we've seen this in our culture is actually just in the song we just sang a few minutes ago. We sang the song um, In Christ Alone, which is a great song, uh, written by Keith Getty. And I forget exactly when he wrote it, but um, in the song he has this great line on there. It says, Till on that cross, as Jesus died, so it talks about Jesus dying, and it says these wonderful words, The wrath of God was satisfied. That's amazing. And we're going to talk about that good news here in a second. The wrath of God was satisfied. But there's lots of people who obviously don't like the wrath of God. They don't like that doctrine. They don't like kind of what we're talking about right here in this day and age. And there's even full-on denominations, Christian denominations, who say, yep, wrath of God, not a thing. Not real. And one of those Christian denominations, Christian denominations, came to Keith Getty after he had written song and said, hey, we really like the song in Christ alone, but we want to kind of change up a lyric on it. Um, we, want, we kind of want to mess with it. And what they said is, what we wanted to say is not the wrath of God was satisfied, but rather God's love was magnified. Okay? Now, first of all, just for clarity, that's awesome. Like, I'm glad. It's very true. The love of God was magnified at the cross. That's good. That's, that's something I affirm. But Keith Getty responded back to them, the writer of Christ Alone, said, no, we're not going to do that. Now, why would he not do that? I mean, it's not like that's not true. The love of God was magnified at the cross. Why would he not do it? Because if you take the wrath of God out of the cross, the cross loses all of its power. Know that, Christian. If you have a God without wrath, one, you have a man without sin. Then you have a kingdom without justice. And then you have a Jesus Christ who did not die on a cross. Because why would Jesus Christ have to die if he did not have to satisfy the wrath of God? What you have is you have a crossless Christianity. You have a no salvation Christianity. And you have nothing of what we see right here in the Bible. The wrath of God was laid upon Jesus Christ at the cross. And brothers and sisters, this right here, while yes, it's not introducing us to the cross, it's showing us about who God and his nature is, shows us exactly what God had to do to redeem sinners. God had to lay upon all of his wrath. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah, wrath upon the Son. The worst thing that the Son experienced on the death was not nails piercing his hands. Rather, it was all the guilt, all the shame, all the cursedness that was deserved for your sin, my sin, all the world's sin laid upon him to suffer the full eternal weight of God. And that's how we can be saved. The wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God was exhausted at, by Jesus Christ at the cross so that whoever might believe in him and his perfect life, atoning death, and his resurrection from the dead 
would be saved. The message of right here, this punishment of God, yeah, it's real, but it will not come for those who have believed in Christ Jesus. It is satisfied on behalf of us for, by Jesus Christ. Now, the last 13 through 15 verses kind of get us to the end of God and what he will do to sinners. And I want to say it again, if you're a Christian, he will not do this. But if you're not, if you haven't believed in Christ Jesus, this is very real. And this is what will happen. And this should, one, give us great fear and trembling of who God is, but also should fill our hearts with great thankfulness that he has saved us by his mercy. The fourth thing is, God will leave you alone. God will leave you alone. Verse 13. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king, but he is not able, this is God speaking, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. So what is Ephraim and Judah doing? That's Israel and Judah. What are they trying to do? They're trying to go to foreign nations like Assyria for help and relief from God because they're facing all this that's going on in the text. They want some help. The problem is Assyria is not stronger, not more mighty than God. And God says, he can't save you. Because here's what's happening. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. God to these people who have rejected him and run away from him and lived in their sin and reveled in it and loved it, wrath, go away. It's basically combining kind of like the last two points that we talked about before this. Is God what? He gives you over to your sin. He takes his hand off and then he unleashes his wrath upon you. And look what it says right here at the end of verse 15. I will return again and you would hope it would say to my people, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. I will return again to my place. He's going to his holy boat. He's leaving the tabernacle. He's leaving the temple. He's leaving the presence with them until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face, and in their distress, earnestly seek me. There's a very real reality to the scriptures that God must completely provide salvation, that he must completely give you a new desire and a new heart to love him, but there's a great reality right here where you are fully responsible for turning to him and believing in him. And God says, if they do not turn to me, if they do not run to me, I will reject them. I will leave them alone. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the scriptures. But what I want to tell you is God also provides great relief. God also provides great relief for those who would believe in Christ Jesus. He offers you the opportunity of salvation. He offers you the opportunity to have a relationship with him, to know him at the cross. But God, as we have seen, he holds you accountable for your sin, God gives you to your sin. He'll punish your sins. And he will also leave you alone if you have not accepted Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for who you are by your very nature. And you are not like us. Not like us in many ways. You are just. You are holy. And you have a holy indignation towards sin 
and evil and wickedness. But God, we thank you so much that you're not like us in the fact that you also give us forgiveness. Yes, you're holy and you're set apart, but you're not like us in the fact that you would, after you've been offended, still come near to us, still redeem us, still buy us back. And Lord, we know about that great news in Christ. And I ask that for brothers and sisters who have not received that good message, that you would put that message in their minds. You would weigh it on their hearts. And you would give them a heart and a spirit who wouldn't love the things of sin, wouldn't love the things of this world, but would love your things, would love your word, would love the spirit, and would love Christ above all. God, I thank you so much for this congregation, the opportunity to open up your word and preach your word. We love and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.